Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince, they exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com/upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hello and welcome to another episode of History Hack. We're really excited today because we have Ben Fogel with us. He's a historian specializing in Central America, borderlands and the Caribbean. He says he does possess other hobbies, honest, but I think you're pleading a little bit too hard on that one. Uh possibly. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> I'd like to think I have some spare time to do other things, but it doesn't always pan out that way. Also, <laughs> so I guess where we start really is First of all, why did you pick Central America? But can you explain to everybody what the Mosquito Coast is? Yes, it's a bit of a niche, relatively unknown area, mainly because it doesn't really, well, it does kind of exist today, but it broadly refers to the eastern coast, the eastern coast maybe half depending on the definition or opinion of what is modern-day Nicaragua and the eastern part of modern-day Honduras, which are two of the republics in modern-day Central America. Um and it tends to refer to an area which is cut off from the pacific side of central america by mountain ranges and dense jungle and as a result the indigenous groups that lived there and still live there were often separated from the i guess the spanish the spanish empire and the pacific side during the colonial period and earlier periods of american history um and so they have a relatively distinct identity although they are parts of modern nation states or modern states I should say I love that so the Spanish empire did try and settle this eastern Nicaragua and Honduras area didn't they yes sort of um i mean obviously during like the kind of the heady days of the early conquest so we're talking early 16th century this is the era of pizarro and cortes and all that kind of all that kind of stuff and in their kind of quest to acquire resources and indigenous labor to put them to work as slaves either on agricultural plantations or in mines they looked everywhere but the groups that resided in what would become the mosquito coast were very tenacious they um many of them were made up of people that had fled from spanish from the spanish presence in other places and taken refuge there mingling with the groups already there and they were very good at fighting off the spanish and the dense and difficult terrain made it very difficult to settle there and also another thing is that there simply wasn't the resources or the dense population centers that were in other places to encourage spanish occupation so they just kind of although they claimed sovereignty over it as a part of their agreement with portugal the treaty of tordesillas they never really built any kind of settlements or towns or even missions for the most part um they had a few attempts but they were short lived and they kind of gave up then we turn up don't we so what happens along the coast starting in 1732 well 1732 is when it's all when's when it really kicks off but slightly before that during the age of piracy lots of pirates kind of with their very small flat bottom like less deep boats are able to navigate the reefs and cays and they become a sort of temporary allies on a on a basis with indigenous groups there they 
kind of really they hide there from the Spanish Navy, from the Guarda Costas, Spanish Coast Guard, um, to recover and refill their supplies, repair their boats, etc., etc. Sometimes to recruit indigenous people to join them on raids. But in 1732, uh, the British, who had always been there, always keen to pirate, to carry out piracy against the Spanish, um, they'd had a few settlements, a few kind of trading posts on there. But in 1732, a man called William Pitt arrives having been driven out of what would become Belize, um, he arrives and he founds a town that would become known as Black River. And this is a real turning point for the coast as it's as this town would grow and become a very significant player in, in the region. And it becomes the centre of this huge kind of contraband hub. And later becomes like this capital of the British presence on the coast. It's still a small town. Um, I think even at its peak, it never numbers more than around 2,000 inhabitants, including kind of slaves. Mm. So it's very small. And that's the thing to remember about this period, about this area, is that everything's kind of small scale. Smuggling is going on. What's the background to the smuggling along this coast? Because the Spanish come along and decide to support it, don't they? Sort of. They don't officially support it. The mm. thing with smuggling and contraband is that it doesn't work if both sides are against it. So parts of the Spanish Empire and what becomes known, well, the Kingdom of Guatemala is the imperial, is the name of the Spanish colony that makes up Central America. Individuals there, kind of local traders, some of the more powerful merchants, engage in this smuggling because it is easier and cheaper than trading legally. Now, The first small-scale kind of agricultural growers, people who are growing indigo, people who are raising cattle and selling hides and tallow, normally what they would have to do is trade through the Guatemalan merchant class, who are this kind of social, political, economic group who have a massive amount of power in the kingdom of Guatemala. They control the courts, they control the economy, they control the government. And so they exercise this monopoly which focuses all economic kind of power and all their wealth on them. And so they charge obscene prices for transport. They charge obscene prices for like credit and loans. Um, it's the point where the people you're getting bank loans from to plant your crop, the people you're paying to move your crop, and the people you're selling your crop to are all the same group. And so these people trade with the British because the British people, because the British smugglers don't have any of that overhead. They'll trade you in goods. They'll trade manufactured goods which is another very important aspect. The British are selling stuff like machetes, woven clothes, ironware, cookware, plates, tables, stuff you need to live that quite often the Spanish, the Guatemalan merchant class are charging through the nose for because it all has to go through the official, legal, very inefficient convoy system from Spain. And this isn't greatly received in Spain. Um, You have this odd situation, I'm doing some research into it at the moment, where you've got some parts of the Spanish imperial government that are, I think at the same time, trying to stop the contraband trade while also trading in it, which is somewhat baffling. <laughs> Slightly <laughs> hypocritical. Yeah, it's basically like, well, we can make money off it for now. We can make more if it wasn't there. So we'll trade in it for now, but we'd love to get rid of it if we could. <laughs> And it's this, this sheer level of duplicity involved. <laughs> And people just trying to make a buck. 
How does the Mosquito Coast become involved in the War of Jenkins' Ear? I suppose we should just remind people what that is as well. We haven't mentioned it before. Yeah. Yeah, so the War of Jenkins' Ear is a war that starts, I think, about the dates. I think it's 1739 is when it starts. So that's seven years after that group was founded. And it's it's a bit of an odd war in the sense that it's kind of, of like... There's, it's obviously very complex, but a big part of it seems to be British popular opinion is just very anti-Spanish. And I mean, the Spanish have been provoking them. They've been uh, catching British ships in the Caribbean, claiming they're uh, smuggling, which, to be fair, they probably are. Um, they've been apparently encouraging indigenous attacks in uh, North America. They've been kind of making eyes and like scouting around Gibraltar in a suspicious manner. And so there's lots of kind of simmering tension and these kind of mild clash and skirmishes over various borders. And so this war kicks off in 1739, named after an incident where in the House of Commons, a sailor, a British sailor called Jenkins, shows his severed ear to the house saying, as like an example of Spanish cruelty, because he had it cut off because he was accused of smuggling and to show and to show the British public the barbarity of Spain. They like, oh, they cut off this man's ear. And Mosquito Coast gets involved because, well, it's bordering Spanish colonies and the indigenous groups, who, the indigenous group there, the Mosquito, um, are potentially who the coast is named after. We haven't probably, haven't, I haven't probably mentioned it to my liking. The Mosquito, who are firm British allies mm. at this point, um, are a pretty dab hand in a fight, it turns out. <laughs> <laughs> and so the governor of Jamaica, a man called William Trelawney, has this great idea of um, sending some British troops, a small, very small amount of British troops, and a load of guns and a load of rum and other stuff to convince the Mosquito to join the British and go on all these raids in Central America, which they do. And they are, again, small scale. They are immensely successful. They go to Honduras, Nicaragua, neighbouring Costa Rica, and they basically burn and pillage and plunder and kind of fend off the Spanish militias and burn down towns and take all kinds of resources, traces of silver, people in some cases, but to sell to Jamaica as slave plantations. Mm. Um, and considering how cheap it was, it's a very low cost, like the, compared to, I mean, this is the same time where the British sends a fleet to besiege Cartagena, a city in Venezuela. Um, or is it Colombia? I can't remember where it is in the modern day, but they send a fleet to Cartagena and besiege it three times and the British army promptly dies of yellow fever. Um, Compared to that massive kind of loss, like economic loss, these raids are very successful. Um, and it basically gets people thinking maybe there's something to this area. And um, and so they begin to... So certain people, not like maybe mainstream kind of political thought at the time, but there are British kind of figures who think maybe we should strengthen our allegiance to the Mosquito and that we should try and use this as an asset in these kind of imperial struggles we're having with Spain. And for that purpose, they send the guy, the guy who was in charge in the board of Jenkins here, and then they send Robert Hodgson to the coast on a permanent placement, essentially. I was just about to ask you, yeah. who is he? Who is he now? He is an interesting figure, to say the least. One Captain Robert Hodgson was, I, he was a soldier in the British Army. Um, I think he was served in Jamaica and got sent to the Mosquito Coast. And he becomes the first what's known as superintendent of the Mosquito Coast. Um, up until this point, the British Empire has had no formal uh, 
official government post on the coast. All the British settlers who were there, William Pitt, the other smugglers, people like that, were just random people who saw unclaimed land and built a house on it, essentially, and set about their business. Robert Hodgson was the British, like the British kind of empire's first official man there. And he was given a commission in 1749. And he was given a, he was given a, he was given a wage. He was given a yearly allowance to buy presents for the mosquito to help keep them on side and to maintain this slightly unusual alliance. But the terms of his appointment would cause severe problems later on, which we'll get to. But basically, he starts trying to organize the mosquito into becoming this constant thorn side of Spain. Um, he technically shouldn't be. So basically, Robert Hodgson gets into a spat with the, governor, the next governor of Jamaica, a man called Charles Knowles. And Charles Knowles gets very angry at him because he keeps receiving complaints from the Spanish governors in Central America. Because, of course, they have correspondence. They are kind of government officials about how the Mosquito are raiding these territories, like raiding these towns. They're still like, like pillaging and taking stuff. And he thinks that Hodgson is encouraging it. Which, to be fair, he probably is. <laughs> but it, there's probably a lack of appreciation for how difficult Hodgson's job is. Is that, I mean, he's definitely profiting off it. Um, as superintendent, he gets, it's very easy for him to position himself to get the biggest slice of the pie in regards to loot from these raids. But the Mosquito aren't, like, awed by the British. They aren't kind of like, they're dogs, bodies, willing servants kind of thing. They have their own aims. And it's a common feature for superintendents after Hodgson. He's in many ways one of the most successful ones. That they are very difficult to persuade to follow British policy. So the British don't want them raiding Spain during peacetime because it's bad for diplomacy. But the Mosquito don't really care that much. They're like, well, the Spanish are the enemy, and they keep threatening to invade us, and they keep sending these, they keep trying to launch these reprisal, reprisal, reprisal attacks. But, and also it's their main source, it's a big source of revenue for them, for prestige in their community and how their culture works, is based on kind of martial prowess. And so there's probably, although Hodgson is profiting off it, he's limited as to how much he can do, but that's not something the governor appreciates. He tries to have him at one point court-martialed, on the grounds that Hodgson sent him a very rude letter, so he tries to have him removed from his office. It's <laughs> not <laughs> just because he threw some shade. Basically, pretty much. I think the quote in the um, in the in the in the report he sent to London that uh, that Noel sent to London was something along the lines of the most it's 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 like it's something like the most pernicious and vulgar letter I have ever had the misfortune to witness. <laughs> <laughs> Probably still not a court martial offence. No, well, who knows? I mean, Knowles didn't like him at all. You know, the like engaging in war when you're at peace is probably more of a severe issue. Um, but he ultimately can't remove Hodgson, as by the end of the 1750s, there's another war. People think there's another war brewing, um, and so they say we want to keep him in position because he's very militarily capable. Um, and Hodgson ultimately dies in office. Um, because the tropics are not a great place to be, but he's in office for, I think, almost a decade. Ten years he serves as a superintendent. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. 
Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Just the name of the coastline is, I, I'm one of those people that gets bitten the second yeah. I step outside the door on holiday. So, yeah, it's like my worst nightmare. Uh, what does Spain do in 1740? So, in the 1740s, during the War of Jenkins era, like right through the 40s and 50s, um, they send a man called Luis Diaz Navarro, who is a very decorated and celebrated, well, not, I think not very decorated, a very competent and very capable engineer who's currently working in in New Spain, what's the modern day Mexico, um, which is like a huge city. I think it's the biggest city in the Americas at this point in terms of population and size. It's a big kind of metropolis. And he's been doing all these projects like helping build churches, building a new mint for coins. And he gets sent to the king of Guatemala because he is told that by the king himself, that the Spanish king, that he wants a full review of the defenses of the kingdom of Guatemala. And he wants them to examine them all and make recommendations for how best to reinforce the kingdom, because it keeps getting raided. The best way to curb or stop the contraband trade, because it's kind of an embarrassment and draining money from Spanish coffers. And to offer his opinion and expert advice on how best to remove the British and what they call reduce the mosquito, which basically means make them Spanish subjects, convert them to Catholicism, bring them into their kind of imperial system. And the reason why this is a big deal is before that, they've basically been trying to send expeditions into the coast to basically conquer the mosquito, kick the British out. And they've been doing this for about 30 odd years, and it's just been a, a series of absolute stunning failures. <laughs> and so they think, right, it's not working, we've taken a methodical approach. Mm. And so Navarro is a very busy man. Like he spends like he travels all the way around the Kingdom of Guatemala. Um, he even becomes, he's made governor of Costa Rica for a period of time because they don't have a governor. And so he just sits in for a few years and runs the region for like, I think, three or four years. Um, and he evaluates their defenses and he makes a recommendation of building two forts. One in Honduras, a place called Omoa, and one in Costa Rica, uh, near a place called Matina, which is a favorite target of mosquitoes. And he basically says, he makes the argument that the only way you're going to remove the British and reduce the mosquito is by building these forts and using them as launch points to control the coast. And by, and by launch points to control the coast and block any potential raids through these main thoroughfares. And this is a fine idea. It makes great sense. But building forts in the tropics is very expensive. It takes a very long time. And so it takes a long time to kind of put it into action. So long so that the situation keeps changing. And I don't, and he actually dies before 
plans put into action. And in fact, of the two forts he recommends, only Omar gets built. Um, the other one in Costa Rica, they build a kind of like a wooden fort, like a stockade, because they throw it up in a hurry. And it lasts for about four years. And then the mosquito just burn it down. Oh, dear. So, <laughs> a complete you know, waste of effort. Pretty much. It's like, yes, we'll build this fort to stop the mosquito. What's that? They burnt it down. Oh, great. Fantastic. Excellent. <laughs> so as we move on through the 18th century, there is obviously the bigger fish to fry further north for the British army um, and for yes. interest there. So, But there's a direct effect, isn't there, on this region from the 1763 Treaty of Paris, which comes after the Seven Years' War. Yes. Yes, there certainly is. So the Treaty of Paris is obviously the Seven Years' War. Anyone who studies 18th century or kind of history in general who looks into it will see the Seven Years' War is a really big deal. Um, I once heard, you know, obviously, as you know, like it's Britain and France basically kind of fighting for who's going to be the top imperial power. Britain wins. And it's mostly to do with North America and India. They're like the really big effects of the Seven Years' War. I'm sure as any U.S. historian will tell you, it's a key part of why the American Revolution happens. Um, but there's one article in particular, I believe it's Article 14, which specifically refers to Central America, and in particular the British presence there. And I mean, I've, got, I've got the wording of it down somewhere, but the key line in it is to the effect of the British government, the, the, the informal 18th century language, like, like, the, like the British crown will see that all fortifications in territories on the mainland of Spanish America are torn down and removed. And in return for this, the Spanish king will allow the British subjects there to be unmolested in their practice and industry of cutting down and shipping away logwood. Now, this caused problems because people interpreted it very differently. Tearing down fortifications is kind of a big symbolic statement because they are the ways in which you claim jurisdiction over a territory, especially in the Americas. The US is covered in forts, which people used to claim territory, as is the Spanish, as the Spanish Empire. And so the Spanish took this to mean that the British were kind of ceding sovereignty. That, oh, if they're tearing down their forts, they, they're ceding sovereignty over these areas. Great, fantastic. Uh, we've won, we can send our officials in and say, right, you either leave or you become Spanish subjects, problem solved. The British people there weren't really informed of any of these negotiations because they're essentially a bunch of smugglers perched on the edge of enemy territory. So London doesn't really care that much. <laughs> And so yeah, when the it's never a priority, is it? <laughs> no, not really. And in fact, like earlier governors like Knowles were basically saying he actually recommended they forcefully remove the British settlers because they're more trouble than they're worth. <laughs> um, which is not that an uncommon opinion from the looks of it. <laughs> but, I think, but, but when the British Navy turns up and says, right, this is right, you need to tear down your forts, the British and the mosquito there go, um, what? <laughs> we need this. If we don't, the Spanish are going to come in and kill us in our sleep. And so they basically argue that, and this starts a whole dialogue about the legality of these settlements and how, like, are they a recognised British territory? Are they a colony? And so you have this moment where 
the British people who live there, William Pitt, like the leading settler at this point, very wealthy, says, like he and others say, Spain never conquered this area, so they have no right to it. It's We've lived here for, at this point, 30-odd years, longer if you count the pirates before them. So it, by international law and international right, it's British territory. Um, and this, like, the, the naval commander, the naval captain is there, kind of takes us on board and figures, I'm not, I'm not, I, I'm not dealing with this. This seems, there's a lot of very angry people here brandishing guns and machetes. Um, I'm just going to go ask the governor of Jamaica, who's kind of in charge of this area around here. He's in charge of the superintendent. I'll go ask him for clarification. And he goes and asks the governor, who also doesn't really know and hasn't given this that much thought. And so he asks London for clarification, who promptly say, we'll look into that, and then don't. <laughs> like and, the nice bit of holding there. Yeah, basically. Either either they basically think, oh, we can just keep hold of this and ignore it, and the Spanish will go away, or I don't want to deal with this. I don't care. I really don't care. Um, like Either way, it doesn't get resolved. And so, But things like things are going to carry on as normal, and then a Spanish like a group of Spanish soldiers and a government official arrive in Black River and say, why is your fort still standing? <laughs> <laughs> and this does not go down well. <laughs> As they find themselves kind of hemmed in by a bunch of very angry, like, British settlers, and far more significantly, a large population of mosquito who, in this part of the Mosquito Coast, really, really don't like the Spanish. And accounts on what happens next are a bit kind of hazy mm. about whether it's like a planned event by William Pitt or whether it's just genuinely something that happens. But William Pitt, basically, because he's got a great deal of influence because he's basically the richest guy around, he shelters the Spanish delegation in his house and hides them in there and then sneaks them out at night. Okay. To stop them getting <laughs> murdered. Because he figures if the Spanish government sends an official over and they just get kind of shot and stabbed to death that's going to really annoy the Spanish government <laughs> just a and, bit yeah and so it begins this whole it begins I mean of course obviously the Spanish official returns and reports that the British haven't torn down their, like haven't torn down their fort they're not going to like swear fields the Spanish king they're still this independent raiding kind of smuggling operation right on their doorstep being a right pin in the ass and this deeply annoys the Spanish government because they feel they've been cheated. Because they, their interpretation of the, their interpretation of the treaty was that we've solved this, but they haven't. The British have just done nothing. Uh, I kind of, I'm a little bit proud though. It's <laughs> <laughs> <And then> just, <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's kind of like, like the British just kind of sit back and go, which, which, which are they going to do anything and let Spain do and just let, just let, let whatever happens, happens. And I mean, this is all to the benefit of the mosquito because the mosquito are just between these two empires getting massive amounts of benefit from it. Oh, more power to them. Yeah, I mean, because basically the British settlers are having to pay them in rum, clothes, handkerchiefs, machetes, guns, to keep to stop the Spanish destroying their settlements. They're raiding the Spanish. They're kind of forcing other indigenous groups to pay tribute to them. Um, because these other indigenous groups are involved in the contraband trade. They're like, mm. they're like the intermediaries between the Spanish and the British. And the mosquito basically say we want like a cut of um, certain things from contraband, otherwise we're going to like interfere. I think with one indigenous group, they had to pay a yearly tribute to a mosquito leader 
think they had to pay in 24 heads of cattle, so 24 cows every year, in order to have access to a certain river. So in many ways, like the, like the mosquito are just massive beneficiaries of this kind of very small scale imperial spat. <laughs> I love, I love that they're the winners. Uh, yeah. There is a massive internal spat, isn't there, that needs London to come and sort it out? Yes, there is. So this is, this is things get a little confusing. So they go through a series of superintendents. Um, it's not a job that many people want because it's kind of like it is the most backwater of imperial backwaters in mm. many ways. Um, I mean, Jamaica is considered a bit of a backwater. It produces vast wealth, but it's a, it's a mostly unpleasant place to be for the for the most part. Um, I mean, I mean, obviously far worse if you're a slave in a sugar plantation. Horrendous. Yeah. And the Mosquito Coast is like one step further than that. Like it's even more kind of. I guess rural, like all the towns are tiny. Like there's a town of I think twelve people at one point, and there's nothing but jungle for miles around. And so they eventually appoint Robert Hodgson's son, confusingly also called Robert Hodgson, <laughs> just to make the historian's yeah. life difficult. Yeah. So you think, wow, he lived for like ninety years. Wait, no, there were two of them. Right. Okay. <laughs> so you've got Robert Hodgson, Robert Hodgson Jr. So I'm talking about Robert Hodgson Jr. now. I'll just call Hodgson for shorthand. So he becomes. Superintendent. He's in London at the time, so he gets his commission. Um, and he's, he goes off to the Mosquito Coast, and a part of his commission says that he is to foster, he is to protect and foster good order in the settlement. Which has been on, which is a slight tweak to the previous superintendent's commissions, which is normally just to engender and create a strong alliance with the Mosquito to the benefit of the British, and to the benefit of the British Crown. But this, to foster good order, he takes to mean that he wants, that they want him to organise the British settlement there and actually set up and formalise the governing structures there. So he goes there and he tries to create, like he tries to create a 12-person council, he tries to have elections, um, he tries to act as like a justice of the peace. And this really ruffles the kind of, like, ruffles the feathers of the British settlers there. They've basically been used to doing whatever it is they like. Um, because again, it wasn't a formally governed territory. Um, and he also ruffles some feathers in Jamaica, because rather than sending his reports and this mail to the Jamaican governor, who then reads them and passes on to London, was sending sealed envelopes to the governor and insisting he pass them direct to London. Which the governor's like, wait, no, I'm in charge of you. Like, <laughs> there's actually a letter of the governor at the time saying, I am not the superintendent's postman. <laughs> <laughs> like, this is this like this isn't how it works, sunshine. Brilliant. And, and so basically, the settlers launched this legal case and tried to have him removed. And there are all these stories about how he's like how he's threatening the alliance of the mosquito by engaging in a slave trade with indigenous Americans, which has been illegal for... It's been, well, it's been a legal thing since, I think, the 1740s, but they've just been doing it anyway and hoping no one notices. <laughs> but they try and get him on that. They say he's been misappropriating funds, that he's been damaging what they call the Spanish trade, i.e. smuggling by monopolising a big chunk of it. And it leads to this legal spat. There are some big documents you can get, like these big 200-page 18th-century legal documents, 
which I wouldn't recommend reading because I have and they're very boring. <laughs> the <most laughs> yeah, this is why I'm glad you've done it and you can just tell us the highlights. <laughs> yeah. And to kind of have a very long story short about all these, like he said, like, kind of like he said, he's like hearsay kind of argument. The British government, because it becomes quite public, like they publish these as things to be read in like, to be to and consumed in popular press back in the UK and in Jamaica. At least the British government, they go, right, okay, let's see. And they actually have to consider, wait, do we actually run this place? And they begin to, and they, they begin to realize that, like, they ask this governor to, like, give him, give him, give him their thoughts on it. And confusingly, this is another governor called Trelawney. Um, and he basically comes, Trelawney comes to the conclusion and he says that technically from what is written, the governor of Jamaica has no power over the superintendent but also the superintendent has no official powers beyond this £500 a year he gets to buy stuff. That's the only power he has, is to spend this £500. He has no legal standing, no political standing. What can he spend it on there? Um, theoretically anything, I guess. Um, he has to send his credit notes to the Treasury. Um, there are a few superintendents who like have to pay for repairs to their houses because of floods, or they pay for like boats to be repaired. But the £500 is meant to be spent on yearly gifts for the mosquito. So it's stuff like rum, it's stuff like hatchets, it's guns, it's... They have a, the mosquito have a real penchant for, like, kind of military jackets and handkerchiefs and hats. Like, they like to dress, they, they dress in what they call English gentleman fashion. So whenever they meet the Spanish and the British, they always wear, like, full kind of European, like, 18th century military dress wear. So the £500 is supposed to cement that alliance. And this causes a bit of consternation because they realise that, and it basically kind of forces this decision about does Britain want to try and take control and make this a colony? Do they want to bring this thing into the British Empire, make it a part of Jamaica, or make it its own colony and actually institute a government there? And they make some steps towards it. Um, the king actually sends a, a well, not personally, like it's signed off with the authority of the crown. That the council, that the, that the settlers have just elected for themselves and run on their own terms, is dissolved by the king. Um, Hodgson is deposed. He's brought back and brought, he's brought back to face charges of running an illegal slavering, which, to be fair, it's quite likely he was. But it's it's probably other people were also running it. It's just he got blamed for it all because he wasn't charged. <laughs> oh dear. Yeah. <laughs> and so. Like and so they begin to set up this kind of like like they, they set they set up a council sort of and it's all very kind of half formed and half developed and they're trying to decide whether or not they want this to be an independent colony whether they want to be part of Jamaica Jamaica obviously wants to be part of Jamaica some people in the Mosquito Coast would rather be an independent colony but it's also the problem of they're not sure how the mosquito will react to it. So then the Mosquito are firm British allies. They maintain that their leaders, which they call King, Governor, General, Admiral, that they are friends and brothers and allies of the British Crown. They're not subjects. <laughs> like, okay. Mosquitoes see themselves as British allies, not... And, like, they're willing to help. They're very keen to help the British because, of course, the British pay them and stuff. But as to actually being subjects, it's questionable over whether they'll accept that step. And this whole thing gets 
kind of thrown completely out of kilter by... I mean, this happens during the 1760s and 1770s, and British imperial policy is a bit distracted <laughs> in the 1770s, 1770s, 1780s. For obvious reasons, uh, yeah. which are the American wars of independence happening further north. What impact do they have? I, I'm guessing distraction. So what happens on the Mosquito Coast because there, there's just more important things to be taken yeah. care of? Well, I say actually quite a lot, but not in the, I say, I say quite a lot happens. I mean, the British see this like they initially think there's going to be another colonial war. So naturally, the Mosquito Coast again kind of stirs into action. Um, they send guns, the superintendent recruits the Mosquito and the settlers, and they begin to plan to, you know, do what they've always done in colonial wars, is go and kick some Spanish butt, essentially, to go and invade Spanish areas and plunder and be just generally annoy Spain. Um, but the Spanish haven't been sitting on their haven't been sitting on their hands all this time. They've been carrying out massive reforms, something called the Bourbon Reforms. Bourbon Reform was a serious sweeping set of changes in Imperial Spain have reached Guatemala. So government's been reorganised, the militias have been completely dissolved and reformed, there are new tax policies, um, they're actually beginning to catch smugglers now. They're actually having success in slowly curbing smuggling. Fort Omar has built, the Spanish Navy is kind of much stronger than it's ever been. So the Spanish are really kind of on the front foot. Um, and so the British, when they launched their attacks, well, the Spanish were planning at the outbreak of war because Spain joins on the French and American side against the British, hoping to, among other things, get back Gibraltar, but also get back the Mosquito Coast. Um, groups they've had very, very dismal luck in so far. But the British strike first, they organise quickly, and they take Spain's new fort briefly. They kind of, they scale the walls at, like, they kind of attack it, they scale the walls at night, and kind of take Spanish by surprise and seize it. But, they hear of a large Spanish army coming to relieve the fort, and so they leave. And there's actually one great incident I found. Um, I don't know how true it is, but it was serialised in popular press at the time of one of the one of the British troops, one of the British soldiers who was sent to the coast. Um, upon scaling the wall and surprising the Spanish lookout, found him unarmed. In a in a, in a true display of honour and British kind of fair play, gave the Spaniard one of his swords and then fought him. <laughs> no. <laughs> Tell me he won, otherwise there's a massive dough moment there, isn't there? I think, I think, I think, I, I think he did win. But okay. I, mean, I, have, I, have, I have no idea how true that is. I have no idea how true that is, but I really want it to be true. Oh, it would just be devastating if he then got run through with the sword he provided, yeah. wouldn't it? I would personally root for the other kind of comedic end, which is the Spanish. Yeah. yeah, okay, <laughs> pulls a gun out of his back, like pulls a gun out of the back of his trousers and just like a true Indiana Jones moment. Just like, okay, pat. Yeah, that would actually be hilarious as well. Yeah, so they kind of have that raid, and it's a success. I think they, they seize a whole Spanish ship and loot it. But then they launch an attack through Nicaragua, and this is a build-up of a series of plans and aspirations from certain British colonial officials. And they launch this attack up the San Juan River. It's a large river that, in the modern days, the border between Costa Rica and Nicaragua. And it leads to a very large Lake Nicaragua, and this is a time where people have been thinking about cutting a canal through Central America way before like, the Panama Canal actually started. It's been an idea for a very long time. And the British think, sweet, if we can sail up this river, 
take the castle at the mouth and take the city at the end, Granada. We can cut this, we can grab this section of Central America, and then we can access the Atlantic and the Pacific Ocean, you know, for like a growing imperial power. This is like the dream. And so they send this large fleet, they recruit loads of mosquito, and they say there's just one Spanish fort on the river, Fort, fort Immaculada Concepcion, Fort Immaculate Conception. Um, we just take that, sail up the river. This will be fine. The Spanish are kind of weak and weedy. We've beaten them all these times in the past. Um, the indigenous groups there are just waiting for us. They'll hail us as liberators. It's going to be going to be a cinch. Um, things that don't, don't get off to a great start. Um, one of the ships is actually commanded. It's one of Nelson's first captaincies. So the Horatio Nelson is there initially, and he bravely turns up, catches yellow fever, and has to leave. <laughs> he, yeah, he does, doesn't he? Yeah. I think he's there for like a week or two, tops. Yeah, not the highlight of his no. career. But he, but but apparently he does acquit himself well enough that he gets a note. He gets a he gets a kind of note in the report, and the British sail up, and they besiege this fort, and this fort gives them much more resistance than they expected, and the British commander in charge tries to order the mosquito around, who don't take too kindly to just sitting around doing siege warfare, going for loads of nice easy villages and towns we can be raiding. Why are we attacking the place made of stone filled with cannons? Um, so things don't go well. So the mosquitoes start to leave. The British take the ford. Disease starts setting in, but they carry on up the river, where, because they've been delayed so long, the Spanish have built another wooden fort at like the, at the top of these rapids, which pin the British down. And I want to confirm this, because I can't quite tell if it's true or not. Again, there's all these records are very sketchy is that the British have to retreat because the Spanish, lacking enough cannons to properly build this fort, build a set of stone throwers, so like catapults, <laughs> and start hocking boulders at the British troops. And this is like in the 1780s, and this is something they haven't had to deal with since like the medieval era. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so the, British, the British kind of guys in charge are like, right, it's hot, it's raining every day, we've all got, we've all got disease, we're all diseased, now they're throwing boulders at us. I say we just go home. And they basically retreat. The Spanish reoccupy the fort. And it's a complete kind of failure for the British. And then the Spanish attack the Mosquito Coast. They launch a full-fledged kind of invasion. It's over 2,000 men supported by ships from the coast. And the Mosquito, annoyed at the, annoyed at the British, basically withdraw into the jungles and don't want to fight a Spanish army like this head-on. And the British, without their mosquito allies, just flee. They leg it. They have no response against the Spanish army like that. And the Spanish take Black River. They take the British capital on the coast. Um, they also settle, they also retake the nearby Spanish town called Trujillo, which has been a central contraband trading point. It's been a major contraband market. They take that. And although the, the Spanish garrison Black River again, it's the tropics, they start catching disease, um, like they catch diseases, Lots of the garrison leaves. Um, the British eventually retake Black River. Um, after a siege, the Spanish, the Spanish um, regiment that's left is allowed to leave with their standards. I mean, the British take it back with the help of the Mosquito, but this kind of fatally undermines the British confidence in the Mosquito Coast because it shows that the one time the Spanish actually launched a solid attack, the defence just crumbled. <laughs> Yeah, it's not a good showing, is it? It just fell apart. <laughs> so how does British influence in the region end? Well, 
it's an interesting one because in the 18th century, this kind of undermines it. And then as the Revolutionary War starts to go badly, um, the British Empire begins, they, they lose the 13 colonies. They've still got Jamaica, which is like this prime sugar-producing gem. And the British government begins to think, right, we've spent loads of money. We're looking, starting to look a bit silly now. We've been smacked about by George Washington. We need to end this war. And so when Spain comes to the negotiating table, the Spain basically says, you have two choices. You can either give us back Gibraltar, or you can get yourself out of the Mosquito Coast and demilitarize Belize. And Britain agrees to remove, remove their settlers from the Mosquito Coast, um, which doesn't go down well. And I mean, this, well, I mean, again, the initial agreement in 1782 is again vague and filled with, like, it's not clear. They have to have another convention in 1786 called the Mosquito Convention, where they basically sit down and discuss just the Mosquito Coast. And the Britain goes, no, no, we will remove them. And like the Mosquito Coast settlers, they release all these pamphlets trying to say, no, it's like, like it's a really good colony. You just invest in it. We can defend it. The Mosquito are really good at fighting. It was just that one time they didn't show up. I like, promised guys. But the British government says, no, we're done. We're done. Like it's embarrassing support. Like it's bad enough that you're basically a bunch of pirates and we've been simply <laughs> allowing you to exist. <laughs> just a bad look. <laughs> Um, so they remove them. Most of them go to Belize, where they basically become lumberjacks. Um, they cut down mahogany and logwood, which is used for dimes, which is seen as far more acceptable to smuggling. And the British and the superintendency is, the purpose of super, superintendent is abolished. Um, well, it's not abolished. The last superintendent basically kind of moves to Belize and starts running that, and they never appoint another superintendent. And the British kind of leave. The Spanish try to settle the Mosquito Coast. They try to found a colony there, but the Mosquito didn't like them very much. And then Spain has a whole world of issues. What with what happens to Spain in, in the French Wars and like the French Revolution, the Napoleonic Wars, Spain gets very distracted and mm. so can't really properly do anything about it. So the Mosquito basically end up in charge of their own territory, as they always kind of have been, essentially. But the British do eventually come back in the 19th century, but that's a whole different. It's under a whole set of different circumstances, and it's a whole. I mean, this kind of period has massive ramifications later on, up until like the 1980s, and even today, um, it has massive ramifications. But for the most part, at the end of the 18th century, the British government turns up and says, you're just too much, you're just too much effort to deal with. <laughs> Brilliant. Well, we'll pause it there, because I think you really should come back and tell us some more about Central American history. And this has been brilliant. It's like when yeah. imperialism goes wrong or just becomes a massive pain in the arse. It's been great. And I love that at the centre of the story, the mosquito pulling yeah. the strings. It really is. It's, it is. It's, it's, an, it's, an, it's an absolute mess in so many ways. Yeah, it's brilliant. Very entertaining. Thank you so much for joining us. That's no problem. Had a great time. Join us on Monday when Samuel Wallace will be with us to talk all about World War II in North Africa. Shamefully, we haven't had yet anything on it. So he's going to give us an overview of that front, so don't miss that. We are now on YouTube. We are posting all of our new episodes on there and we have our own channel and we are gradually posting all of the back episodes because we have been made aware of the fact that you can only find the last hundred on some platforms. So you can go and listen to your heart's content and laugh at the cartoons and have a great time. So do go over there and subscribe. 
don't forget, you can become a patron of History Hack for as little as a dollar a month. Just go to www.historyhack.podbean.com. It will help us keep going in the aftermath of the coronavirus, and we would really appreciate it, as we would love to do so. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.